going. Acts chapter 23. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we do thank you tonight for your word. Lord, it is a great joy whenever we have a chance to open up the scriptures and study through your word. We thank you for those that have come out tonight. Lord, we pray that, that we could meet you here in this place tonight. And that once again, you would speak to us through, uh, through your inerrant, infallible word. Speak to us afresh. Speak to us again. Encourage us, Lord. Give us new insights and fresh wisdom for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 23 reminds me of the day in 1975 when Hank Aaron came to town wearing a Milwaukee Brewers uniform. It was shocking. For the previous 21 seasons, Hammer and Hank had been the pride of the Braves, the face of the franchise. The all-time home run king was a Brave, not a Brewer. But there he was. You couldn't deny it. Number 44 at Atlanta Stadium in the visitor's dugout. And every longtime Braves fan like myself felt just a little twinge of betrayal. Did we not? But it was true. Hank Aaron had changed teams, as did the Apostle Paul. You know, there were Jews who studied alongside Paul in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the rabbi. They offered sacrifices with him in the temple. They even saw him supervise the stoning of Stephen. How surreal it must have felt to now see their former hero on the other team. A once devoted Jew, a zealot, was now a follower of Jesus. Amazing. He preached the salvation that was offered to Gentiles, no less. And boy, did the Jews seethe with anger and the twinge of betrayal. They rushed Paul. The crowd mobbed him. They began to beat him. And if a Roman garrison had not been dispatched, Paul would have been dead. As chapter 21 closes, he's on the steps of police headquarters there in the temple, the fortress of Antonio. The mob is demanding a lynching. There's so much bedlam that the chief of police can't reconstruct what's happened. That's when Paul steps up to preach. Remember, it had been his goal for 20 years to preach the gospel of Jesus to his Jewish peers. Never, though, in his wildest dreams did he think it'd be like this. But who's to argue with God's purposes, God's methods? He was focused on the opportunity. And in chapter 22, he shares his testimony. The crowd listens until he says one word, Gentiles which sets off another firestorm again. The Roman in charge, he wanted to know why the Jews were so hostile toward Paul. And so he decides that a formal encounter with, the, with his accusers is in order. And that's what brings us now to chapter 23. We'll actually begin the last verse of chapter 22, verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews... He, this Roman commander, released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. Now, this council was the Sanhedrin, the 
Jewish Supreme Court. Remember, this was the same body that had condemned Jesus to death. And the commander brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council. What a moment this must have been. You know, the last time Paul had eyeballed these fellas, he was on their side. In fact, he was their heavy hitter. He was their hit man, no less. Now he's in the visitor's dugout. And look at how he opens. <laughs> he's brimming with courage, no doubt. He says, men and brethren. Now normally, a defendant before the Sanhedrin would address this august body as rulers of the people. To call them men and brethren was to put himself on their level. Paul did view these men as his peers. At one time, he had been one of them. But you can bet his language angered him further. Almost as much as what he says next. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Boy, the Jews probably ripped their clothes again. To them, this was an claim of blasphemy, you know, without any knowledge of the grace of God or the righteousness that comes through Jesus. It is true, any talk of a good conscience would be arrogant at best, heretical at worst. How dare Paul claim to be right with a holy God? This just shows how far or how little they understood of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, the high priest orders a crony to actually slap Paul in the mouth, shut him up a bit, cold cock the boy. Verse 2, Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, Paul strikes back, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? How about a counterpunch on Paul's part? Now, in my opinion, Paul may have lost his cool here. <laughs> Remember, his goal is to preach the gospel. Starting out by calling the high priest a hypocrite, a whitewashed wall, may not be the best way to introduce an evangelistic sermon. It seems that even Paul lost it at times. He rebukes Ananias for punishing him before he's even convicted. Verse 4, And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. A ruler. Or could I add, a pastor. Or an elder. Or a teacher. Or a parent. We could add a few other titles to the list. Now notice here, Paul quotes Exodus 22, verse 28. Don't speak evil of a ruler. His rebuttal could actually be taken in a couple of different ways. He could have been speaking sarcastically. In essence, he was saying, Oh, I didn't know that a guy like this could actually be a high priest. Paul could have been referring to Ananias' poor priestly record. Trust me, Ananias, he was a miserable high priest. Did you know he served for 12 years and he used the temple oversight to pad his own pockets? He was the one behind the money changers and the sacrifice sellers there in the temple. 
he was eventually murdered by his own people, the Jews. Or Paul may have actually not been able to see that it was the high priest that he was talking to. You remember earlier we talked about the problem Paul had with his eyes. That often inflammation would flare up and impair his vision. He could be saying, I didn't know that it was the high priest. I couldn't see him. Whatever the reason, Paul certainly had dug himself a hole with the Jews. And now he looks for a way out. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And of course, that's why they're sad, you see. And no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Now at the time, there were two main divisions within Judaism. And here Paul diverts attention off of himself by pitting these two factions against each other. The Sadducees were the liberals. They denied the existence of angels and the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. In fact, they believed that only the first five books of Moses were inspired scripture. They were the materialists, whereas the Pharisees were the supernaturalists. They believed in angels and eternal life and the resurrection. They held the whole Bible as inspired by God, the law, the poetry, and the prophets. And Paul knows that these two groups are rivals. Paul himself had been a once proud Pharisee. And now he appeals to Pharisee pride, and trust me, there was a lot of it. Everyone was angry that Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus. But didn't the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the body? Indeed, they did. Here, Paul shrewdly reframes his trial as an attack on Phariseeism. Wait a minute. You're blaming me for believing in the resurrection when you believe in the resurrection yourself? Very clever. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. <laughs> in a roundabout way, Paul's doctrine actually substantiated the Pharisees. And so here they back off. Wait a minute. We've thought about it. On second thought, we've got no problems with Paul. But a heated debate arose with the Sadducees. For now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. The Pharisees suddenly were for him. The Sadducees were still against him. Evidently he got caught in the middle and they treated him like a pulley bone. They almost tore his limbs apart. Finally the commander comes and rescues him once again. He saves his skin a second time. Now, I would imagine that in light of this treatment and the failed attempt at sharing his testimony with the Jews, Paul got discouraged. I have no doubt. Three times now, really, he's tried to share the gospel to, these, to the Jews, but with very little success. 
And, and I believe that Paul sunk into a funk. It can happen. Even to a Paul, it can happen. But the God of all comfort comes to him in verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you know that in your most depressed times, in your bluest times, the Lord stands by you as well? And he said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I'm sure that Paul considered his trip to Jerusalem a failure at this point. I'll bet he even wondered, maybe I should have heeded all of those warnings Maybe I should have stayed away from Jerusalem. But that wasn't God's opinion. Here he commends Paul's efforts. He says, be of good cheer as you have testified of me in Jerusalem. He doesn't put Paul down for having gone to Jerusalem. You know, as a matter of fact, he holds it up. As, as you've testified in Jerusalem, you'll testify in Rome. God speaks of Paul's efforts to the Jews in a positive light. Remember, our responsibility is to simply share the gospel. The results, how people respond, that's between them and God. Now recall last week, we discussed whether Paul was right or wrong to visit Jerusalem at this particular time. You remember God had called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, everywhere Paul preached to Gentiles, people got saved. But whenever he tried to preach to Jews, he narrowly missed getting slayed. Prior to this visit to Jerusalem, believers and prophets alike had warned him of danger. When he arrives, James even suggests a questionable move. Paul, perform a ritualistic vow in order to court the sympathies of the Jews. All these efforts failed, tragically. Paul's visit to Jerusalem actually got him into deep trouble. On the surface, we might call it a mistake. Paul, this was just stubbornness, not the will of God, but not so fast. For there's evidence on the other side of the, the question. Earlier in Acts 19, verse 21, we're told that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Was the Holy Spirit part of his longings, part of his determination? He said in chapter 20 that none of these warnings moved me. He was ready not only to be chained, but to die for Jesus' sake in Jerusalem. Did you know that in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says, makes an astonishing statement. Paul said that he would go to hell if it meant that the Jews would go to heaven. Imagine, you know, I'm not sure there's anybody in my life I could honestly say that about. How do you argue with such a heart? With such a passion for the lost. In fact, review Paul's calling at the time of his conversion. Jesus said to him there in, in the house of Ananias that Paul would bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. From the beginning, God knew that he would share his testimony, that he would reach out to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. He says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Obviously, favorable results weren't the only sign that Paul was walking in the will of God. Now, here's my answer to the question, was it God's will for Paul to visit Jerusalem and enter the temple at this particular time? Here's, I'm very clear. Here's my answer. 
Who knows? Here is a classic case where the will of God seems as clear as mud. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you realize that when it comes to these subjective decisions, discerning God isn't an exact science. Discerning His will isn't an exact science. What college do I attend? How do you decide? Who do I marry? Where do I buy a house? God, what's your will in these matters? How do I determine this? God, do you want me to go to Jerusalem at this time? Do you want me to join these Jews in taking a vow? I mean, you can't open your Bible and get a definitive answer to these questions. Now, as Paul did, you listen to your heart. You seek advice from friends. You stay open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But what if you're still unclear? You see, here's what we all need to know about God and His will. You see, God is experienced in working with frail, infallible people. He's very experienced with this. I have a hard time discerning my wife's desires, and we can talk and text. How much more difficult will it be for me to pick up on the nuances of the Spirit's direction? And God understands this. God knows how dense I am. That's why He includes some latitude in His will for me. There's always a plus or minus margin for error. You see, walking in God's will is seldom stopping on a dime. It doesn't require me to hit a bullseye from a thousand feet. You see, God makes room for my humanness. This takes the pressure off us. I believe this is what David meant in Psalm 18, verse 36. There David prayed, You enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. Certainly, God was guiding David's feet. But in addition to that, and this is what's so hopeful, he was also enlarging his path. He's saying, as long as David's heart is right, God's going to make sure that his feet don't go astray. You know, when I stumble, when I stagger, God just enlarges the path under me. Even if we get out of step with God, even if we veer a little to the right or to the left, He's not going to abandon us. In fact, He'll stretch out the white lines to keep us in His will. At times, God will enlarge the lane just to keep us moving in the right direction. Here, God may have broadened His will to accommodate Paul's zeal. So I believe that God loves us and that He won't let us forfeit the blessings of His will just because we miss a cue or there's a little play in our steering wheel of our, of our life. No, God is big enough to accommodate His children's weaknesses. Here's my point. Did Paul do everything right? I doubt it. But in the end, God got him where He wanted him to go. God fulfilled His will for Paul. And I believe he'll fulfill his will in your life if your heart is right and if you put your trust in him. He'll guide your steps, but then at times he'll also enlarge your path.
Verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Here's the zeal of a terrorist. These guys are serious. They're going to go on the kill a Christian weight loss program. No matzo balls, no falafels, no lamb chops for them until Paul is dead meat. Forty men take this oath. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. In other words, these 40 hungry assassins set up an ambush. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Amazing. Uncle Paul had a nephew within earshot of the conspirators. Now what do you think the odds were of this nephew walking past these Jewish thugs just as they were devising and articulating their plot against Paul. To me, this is obviously an act of God's providence. It was a miracle. God made sure that this, this young boy was in the right place at the right time. That the right boy was in the right place at the right time. That, that's God's providence. He's looking out for Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, and he rats on the Jews. He tells them what he's plotted. He says, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander, he let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one, that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which was around 9 o'clock in the evening. In other words, they're going to move Paul just after dark. They're going to use the cover of night in order to shuffle him on to Caesarea. And then provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And we're going to talk more about the Roman governor Felix in chapter 24. He's an interesting person. Remember, though, Caesarea by the sea. This was the Roman headquarters there in Jerusalem. The governors always stayed there in, in the palace there overlooking the, the beautiful coastline there in Caesarea. He would only come to Jerusalem on special occasions, and so... The commander knows that instead of getting the governor to come to Jerusalem, they're going to have to take Paul to him in Caesarea. And this commander knows 
that Paul is a high-value target for these terrorists. So, in addition to transporting him at night, he also puts together a military detail that will escort him the 65 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And along with the prisoner, he also sends a letter of explanation. Verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews. He's talking about Paul. And was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. And then he closes, farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Now this was a city halfway from Jerusalem to Caesarea. In fact, the road from Jerusalem to Antipatris was narrow, and it was very mountainous. It was perfect for the ambush. But the road north from Antipatris to Caesarea, it got flat, and it was more open. In other words, once they got to Antipatris, the dangerous part of the journey was over. That's why the next day, the 200 foot soldiers and the 200 spearmen They left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. And so the troops returned to Jerusalem, but the cavalry finished escorting Paul to Caesarea. Verse 33. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you. When your accusers also have come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, the reason the accusers aren't there is because they're back in Jerusalem, still hoping that Paul's going to come to the high priest so that they can kill him. They've still set up their ambush. They're going to find out the next day what's happened, and they're going to make their way to Caesarea. Chapter 24. Now, after five days... Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders. Now notice, even though Caesarea to Jerusalem is northward, we're told that when the high priest makes the journey, he goes downward. Notice that? He came down. And why is that? It's because whenever you leave Jerusalem, you go down. Jerusalem's in the mountains. Thus, anywhere you leave, you're always going downward from Jerusalem. Anytime you go to Jerusalem, you're always going upward. At the time, this Ananias, this high priest, he was 80 years old. And yet, he was willing to make the 65-mile trek. Not an easy journey for an 80-year-old. Why do you think he, he made the journey? I think it just goes to show how much he hated Paul. He, he wanted once and for all to get rid of this guy. And so he makes the journey. And coming with Ananias was a certain orator named Tertullus. Once the Stanford Research Institute tested 
how various professions affected a person's perspective. The first interviewee was an engineer. He was asked, what does 2 plus 2 make? Well, trained in the exactness of mathematics, the engineer responded, in absolute terms, 2 plus 2 makes 4. Well, the second interviewee was an architect. He was asked, what does 2 plus 2 make? Well, due to the creativity of his craft, his response was a little bit more elaborate. He says, well, there are several possibilities. 2 plus 2 makes 4, but so does 3 plus 1, and so does 2 and a half plus 1 and a half. You've got several options here. That was the architect. Well, the final interviewee was a lawyer. And so the researcher, he, he pulled him in and he says, what does 2 plus 2 make? Immediately, the attorney, he jumps up, he goes over, he shuts and locks the door, he pulls down the blinds. He leans over to the researchers and, and he whispers, Well, tell me what you'd like for it to make. Sad to say, lawyers have a reputation for bending the truth. And such was the case with the lawyer we meet here in Acts chapter 24. Tertullus. He was a wizard of rhetoric. He was a master of verbal deception. He was a high-priced lawyer bought by the Sanhedrin to send Paul up the river. You see, Tertullus, he could flatter a judge. He could obscure the facts. He could dress up a lie. He was slick and shrewd, a real truth bender. And he's the one who comes with Ananias. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Oh boy. Here's where you need to reach under your seat and pull out the airsick bag. Because, friends, this is nauseous. Tertullus claims that Felix was responsible for peace and for prosperity. To the contrary, this governor Felix, he authored brutal attacks. He was a corrupt politician. Marcus Antonius Felix was the only Roman procurator to ever rise to his position from the ranks of a slave. But though he climbed in status, he remained stuck in stature. Felix was a brutish man. Tacitus, the Roman historian, he says this of Felix. He had the power of a king and the mind of a slave. Felix was anything but what Tertullus calls him noble. Nothing but flattery from the lawyer. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. He calls Paul a plague, literally a pest. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Makes Paul sound like a gang leader. There's the Bloods and the Crips and then those Nazarenes. Here's another first century name for the followers of Jesus. 
They were called Nazarenes after Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But this was also a derogatory term. Since Nazareth was a hick town, a real backwoods place. I mean, this would be like calling these Christians a group of rednecks or the swamp people. You guys are nothing but swamp people. Tertullus begins his case here in verse 6. Paul even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. He starts out with an outrageous lie. Rather than profane temple protocol, you remember what Paul, Paul was trying to observe Jewish ritual. He was trying to placate the Jew. He was taking a Jewish vow according to their law. But the commander, Lysias, he came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Oh boy, talk about rewriting history. The Romans were trying to stop the violence of the Jews. Not vice versa. Tertullus here goes on to blame Lysias for forcing this trip to Caesarea. The Jewish leaders, they could have just taken care of these matters back in Jerusalem, but now he's commanding his accusers to come to you. He goes on in verse 8, By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Boy, this Tertullus, he doesn't want the facts to get in the way of a good argument. Here is a slimeball lawyer in action. Verse 10, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul knew that Felix had been around a while. In fact, Felix had been the Roman governor for, oh, about five years up until this time. He was the governor over Palestine from 52 to 59 A.D. And Paul is thankful for his longevity because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul's saying, Tertullus, he was long on style, but he was short on substance, man. He had an argument, but he didn't have any evidence to back it up. Now the defense is going to present its case. Paul says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which is called a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Note the Jews at the time called the Christians a sect or a branch of Judaism. They considered it a heretical branch, but a Jewish branch nonetheless. Paul, on the other hand, he referred to Christianity as the way. I think it's important to understand that Jesus was never a sect among many sections. He was, just he was never one section of Judaism. Jesus was never a small slice of something bigger. I hope you know Jesus is the way. Jesus is the whole enchilada. He's the only way that a man can get to God. Well, Paul goes on to explain his faith. He says, Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. But Paul's saying that, that my belief, 
parallels that of the Jews. I don't understand where we, where we are con, con, contrary to each other. You see, Paul would not have labeled himself as a former Jew. He would have rather called himself a fulfilled Jew. For nothing he believed nullified or contradicted the Old Testament or his Hebrew heritage. His faith in Jesus as the Messiah simply fulfilled his Judaism. Remember, Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus didn't contradict Judaism or the law. He simply took it a step further. The work of Jesus completed the Old Testament imagery and symbolism. Jesus is now the new temple. He's the perpetual priesthood. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the author of a better covenant. All that Judaism looked forward to, Jesus is now fulfilled. Verse 16, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Remember, this was how he opened his defense before the Sanhedrin back in verse 1 of chapter 23. This was before Ananias cold-cocked him in the mouth. Paul's saying, he's never done anything to offend true biblical sensitivities. Paul begins to recount his version of the temple riot. He says, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. And in the midst of which, some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. That's what caused the mob there in Jerusalem were false accusations that had been made by the Asian Jews who said that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. It's interesting that in light of the possibility of cross-examination, Paul's accusers suddenly vanish. Nobody comes with him to testify in Caesarea because they know they could be cross-examined and be proved liars. Verse 20, Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, here's where Tertullus must have realized that he had met his match. For Paul also had a shrewd legal mind. You know, a good number of the Jewish delegation that had come to Caesarea were no doubt Pharisees. They believed in the future resurrection of the body. Here, Paul insists that he's being condemned for the very same belief held by his accusers. What hypocrisy! Of course, the charge against Paul wasn't his belief in the resurrection of all, but in his belief in the resurrection of one, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet he shrewdly frames his case in the general rather than in the specific, so it becomes impossible for the Pharisees to condemn him without also condemning themselves. This is how Paul got off the hook in chapter 23. And so he goes to the well one more time. He's gaining some great experience in getting out of tight squeezes. Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. Notice it's interesting here that Felix, the governor, had some prior knowledge of Christianity. His wife was Jewish. It might have come from her. We're going to meet her in a moment. Luke continues. He adjourned... He adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias 
the governor, the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Felix wanted to hear from the commander who had initially dealt with this disturbance. Sadly, there's no record that Lysias ever made it to his court. So Felix commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. In other words, Paul was placed under house arrest. Case is over. They're waiting on Lysias. They put Paul under house arrest. And for the, two ne- two, for the next two years, Paul is going to live in Caesarea. Not a bad place to hang out for two years if you've been there. He's going to entertain his friends. He's going to disciple believers. Rather than a cold, dank prison, Paul is given a two-year, all-expense-paid stay in a beautiful coastal town like Caesarea. And let me add, after three long, rigorous missionary journeys, I see it as God supplying Paul a little rest and relaxation, deservedly so. This was a siesta on Paul's journey just before his final lap to Rome. And these two years in Caesarea provided Paul's buddy Luke an opportunity to do some important research. You remember Luke was a very talented man. He was a doctor and he was a historian. And from Caesarea, Luke would have been able to visit Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. He was able to run down the stories. All over the countryside, Luke would have been able to interview folks who had seen firsthand the life and miracles of Jesus. It was just 25 years after the fact. Many of the eyewitnesses were still alive. Luke was able to speak to Mary and the shepherds and Jesus' brothers and Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, and Nicodemus, and probably even interviewed some officials from Pilate's court. Imagine the interview that Dr. Luke had with Lazarus, the man who had been raised from the dead. Luke compiled all of his research into two volumes. He wrote two letters to a rich sponsor named Theophilus. And now today we call those letters, his research, those volumes, the books of Luke and Acts. You remember back in the opening of Luke's gospel, he refers to Theophilus by the title Most Excellent. This was a common title given to Roman officials. And it's possible that Luke's gospel and its sequel, Acts, were actually written as part of Paul's legal defense that he'll take with him to Rome where he'll stand before Caesar. That would mean that the two of the New Testament's longest books were actually legal briefs. To me, all this is a wonderful example of God's undeniable faithfulness. At first, Paul's trip to Jerusalem must have seemed like a disaster, that he'd gotten off God's path. But no, God enlarged his path under him. God used this time to buy Paul some needed refreshment and to provide the church, in its long history now, two of its most important treasures, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's just proof of what Paul wrote to the Romans. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called.
according to his purpose. Here's a provocative thought tonight. If Paul had not been detained for two years in Caesarea, we might not be reading the book of Acts tonight. Verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now this Drusilla, she was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. This was the man at the time of Jesus' birth who ended up slaughtering all the male babies in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. She was his great-granddaughter. Her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, was the king who beheaded John the Baptist and stood trial over Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, her father, Herod Agrippa I, was the man who beheaded the apostle James. This was the fellow who allowed all of the people who was in the same amphitheater there in Caesarea, and he allowed all the people to begin to praise him and begin to bring him glory, and God judged him for his arrogance by allowing worms to eat out his intestines. You remember the story from Acts chapter 12? Drusilla was from this family. You could say that Drusilla was one of ancient Israel's Kennedys. She was a debutante. She was a member of the ruling class. She was called a Herodian. Over the years, she had heard and seen and read a lot about Jesus. But now, to have Christianity's leading spokesman in her palace, what an opportunity. And she wants to visit with Paul. She wants to learn more. She brings along Felix. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, this is Paul's sermon, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away from now, for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Notice the content of Paul's sermon. What a sermon it must have been. He deals with three topics. Victory from yesterday's sins. Victory over today's temptations. And victory come tomorrow's judgment. Well, I wish his sermons had been recorded and put on YouTube. How many internet hits would, have, would Paul's sermon have got? This sermon would have gone viral. But note Felix's sad reply. He delayed a decision until a more convenient time. Hey, it's never more convenient to get right with Jesus than right now. You know, statistics say that 82% of all Christians come to Christ before the age of 19. 82%. And here's why. The more you say no, the harder it gets to say yes. If you resist the Holy Spirit, it causes a hardening of the arteries, the spiritual arteries. And often the effects are irreversible. You see, in a sense, commitment is never convenient, but it is absolutely imperative. Verse 25 tells us that Felix was afraid. Like a lot of folks today, Felix was afraid to relinquish his pride, to surrender control of his life to another, to Jesus. And as a result, he put off this decision to a more convenient time. But we're told that Felix had another motive. Meanwhile, 
he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Felix never filed any formal charges against Paul because he was holding him in hopes of extorting a bribe. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Boy, it's interesting. Paul and Felix, they must have talked on numerous occasions. Yet, apparently, a more convenient time never came. That's why I say the most convenient time to give your life to Jesus is right now. The chapter ends, verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul will remain in chains, but soon he's going to conclude that enough is enough. And he's going to force the hand of the new governor to send him to Rome. where He'll stand trial before the Caesar himself. And we'll get to that next week. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we pray that we could take these truths and hide them in our heart. Help us to pull lessons from tonight, Lord, that we can apply to our lives. Help us, Lord, to walk in your will. Help us, Lord, with all our hearts to seek to know your will for our lives and to stay right there between the center lines of your will. But at the same time, Lord, help us realize that you're so faithful and you love us so much. That if our heart is right, even if we steer to the left or to the right, you'll broaden our path. You'll widen the road. You'll make sure we get to where you want us to be. We're so thankful for that. We praise you tonight, Lord, with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we, we pray. Amen.